Promise not to call on anyone. <laughs> okay, well, we'll go ahead and get started. I just got the, the high sign from our technician. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out at 8.30 on a morning after an LSU football game. We really appreciate that. Um, this is hands-on versus hands-off, the Rembrandt rule revisited. And we will be recorded this morning as a podcast. So the speakers will be using the microphone, and we will have a Q&A session at the end where we'll repeat the question back to you uh, for the, the purposes of the recording. Uh, on your seats uh, were some evaluations and the ASLH um, little commercial here. Please do fill out the evaluations. We actually do read them and uh, take into consideration uh, what you say and try and make next year's conference all that much better for you. Uh, so please do complete those. Uh, my name is Michelle Zupan, and I am the curator and director of Hickory Hill and the Tom Watson Birthplace in Thompson, Georgia. Uh, we use our birthplace site as, and its artifacts as a way of violating the Rembrandt rule at every chance that we get. Uh, this article, Rethinking the Rembrandt Rule, ran in AAM's Museum Magazine in March of 2008. It was written by James Vaughn, who was then the Vice President for Historic Sites at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The impetus for the article came primarily from the Stewardship of Historic Sites meeting, also known as the Kikwit Conference, hosted by the Trust along with AAM, AASLH, the American Architectural Foundation, and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Following that meeting, Jim was working to help prepare another historic site for opening when he ran afoul of the collections staff by suggesting that the collections management creed illustrated here as the Rembrandt rule um, might ought to be tweaked just a little bit. Maybe visitors could sit in a chair or two. For those unfamiliar with the Rembrandt rule or with Jim's article, here are the salient points. Of the 17,000 museums in the United States, the largest percentage are historic house museums and historic sites. These are buildings that are, in essence, being adaptively reused as museums. The vast majority of our professional standards are borrowed from museums that were built to be museums. Most of those standards are difficult, if not impossible, for us to achieve, such as light levels, temperature, exhibit cases, and fancy electronic gadgetry, without compromising the essence and the fabric of our sites. Jim suggested that this tyranny of every artifact being treated as a Rembrandt be rethought and historic sites and historic houses develop graduated standards for their collections. In a recent History News article entitled, Do History Museums Still Need Objects? Rainey Tisdall suggests that museums need objects more than ever, but we don't all need the same ones. We all have junk in our collection, yes? Anyone got junk in their collection? I got junk. I ain't got junk in my trunk. We've got multiple objects that we've never had time to deaccession that are exactly like the, those objects in the Historic House Museum two blocks down the road, like the objects in the museum two towns over, and the objects that are in the museum one state away. And it's been made clear from the 2008 Reach Associates study and in our own visitor surveys that visitors desire a more interactive relationship with our collections, whether that's dropping the velvet ropes, 
going behind the scenes, or mucking out a chicken pen with a historic pitchfork. For those one-of-a-kind, Lincoln really did wear this object, then it's always going to be hands-off, no question. But for those 42 shakily provenant spinning wheels sitting in the basement, why not teach a class on spinning historic fiber? Overall, this will enhance the visitor experience and keep them coming back. Last year in Oklahoma City, the Historic House Museum Committee hosted the first part of this panel, where theoretical discussions on violating the Rembrandt rule were held. Today, we're back. And we're going to help illustrate the points that were made last year with practical examples of how it's being accomplished throughout the country and how accreditation figures into this picture. We have three panelists here to my left who are going to discuss their own experiences on rethinking the Rembrandt rule and how those experiences shape their institutions today. First up at bat is Mr. Don Zuris. He is the head curator at the Corpus Christi Museum of Science and History and also a peer reviewer for AAM. He will assess how well institutions are faring while violating the Rembrandt rule. Next up will be Dr. Ron Potvin, where he is from Brown University, where he not only violates the Rembrandt rule as the assistant director and curator of the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage and the University Museum, but also instructs those active young minds who would someday like to take our jobs. Last but never least is Mr. Eric Holland, who is the Curator for Education for the State Historical Society of North Dakota and the National History Day Coordinator for the State of North Dakota. He has violated the Rembrandt rule in several states and <laughs> will talk in depth about his experiences at the Minnesota Historical Society. Now, all of our handouts today are being done greenly at the request of AASLH and are available at this URL on the AASLH virtual conference site. We hope today to tweak your whiskers a bit and spark a lively discussion. So once all the speakers have presented, we'll open it up for Q&A, and our technician is setting up a, a Q&A microphone that you can step up to. Please. Don't be afraid to challenge our presenters. They're all well prepared and can handle it, I assure you. So I will turn it over to Mr. Don Zuris. Thank you, Michelle, and good morning. Um, I'm here this morning not representing the uh, Corpus Christi Museum of Science and History, uh, nor representing ASLH, but as a peer reviewer uh, for uh, the Museum Assessment Program and Accreditation Program uh, through AAM. The Museum Assessment Program uh, began in 1981 and to date has served over 4,300 museums. Uh, as I said, the program began in 1981 and I did my first uh, museum assessment as a peer reviewer uh, in 1992. So it's been about 20 years uh, that I've been doing it and I think I do about one or two a year. Um, and I was also um, 
on a select committee that revised the peer review manual in 2002 and uh, much to my surprise received the Excellence in Peer Review Service Award at the AAM annual meeting in 2007. Uh, so in the 20 years that the MAP program, incidentally, how many of you all have gone through either MAP or accreditation? Wow, well, I guess I can leave. Um, <laughs> so over 4,300 museums have, been, have gone through the program since 1981. Uh, and as Michelle mentioned, today there are over 17,000 museums in the United States. Of those, 750 are accredited by AAM. Both the accreditation program and the museum assessment or MAP program uh, rely on a self-study uh, that the institution does, uh, submits the self-study to AAM, and as part of the exercise of the self-study, there are directed activities. Uh, after the self-study is submitted to AAM, uh, then the institution goes through a peer review process where one or two museum professionals uh, do an on-site visit of one to two days. Uh, after the on-site visit, uh, that results in a report that is then uh, submitted to AAM and then in turn forwarded on to the institution. Uh, in the uh, close to 20 years that I've been doing it, um, my reports, uh, and I see Janet is back there, Janet Vaughn, my reports generally uh, average around 25 to 50 pages, single-spaced, uh, with um, appendices and, and resources and that sort of thing. Um, if anything, I think I've been criticized by AAM for being too thorough. Uh, but don't worry, I always had, uh, include an executive summary as well. So I'm looking at, or coming uh, to this uh, session this morning as an AAM peer reviewer, and the what I'm going to say uh, this morning is, is from the point of view of a peer reviewer, and that is that national standards and best practices uh, is what guides the peer review process. National standards are generally accepted levels of attainment that all museums are expected to achieve. Best practices, on the other hand, are commendable actions uh, and philosophies that demonstrate an awareness of standards and that museums may, may choose to emulate if appropriate to their circumstances. Now, what does that mean in plain English? In plain English, national standards are things that all good museums should live up to, and museums can expect to be criticized by their colleagues or supporters if they do not achieve the standards of the profession. They are fundamental to being a good museum. Best practices are something extra. Museums should be lauded if best practices are achieved and not fa uh, faulted if they cannot be achieved due to circumstances or lack of resources. So that brings us to two core questions that underlie any assessment of a museum when measured against museum standards. One. How well does the museum achieve its stated mission and goals? And throughout the entire process of um, the MAP process, 
the, the process is measured against the mission statement of the organization, uh, against its mission and goals. How well does the museum's performance meet national standards and best practices as generally understood in the profession and appropriate to its circumstances? As I said, the mission, mission statements are generally, uh, is, is the benchmark uh, that the institution is measured. They are generally broad in scope. Uh, mission statements explain whom the institution will serve and how. And the key question in any assessment is, is the, is the museum meeting its mission? But since museums uh, create their own mission statements, uh, museums have then chosen themselves as the principal benchmark by which they will be evaluated. Standards, however, change over time. Um, museum standards arise out of how, how to do things well, like conservation or education, that is technical knowledge, such as temperature and humidity ranges, um, those are pretty well given and understood. Museum standards also arise out of attitudes regarding what is right and appropriate. In other words, ethics. For example, the owning and displaying of human remains and sacred objects. Um, there isn't a, a year that goes by that somebody in our institution doesn't say, uh, come up and say, where's the mummy um, or the shrunken head? As society changes, museum standards evolve within the larger context of the cultural environment. Now, where does this leave us with regard to the Rembrandt rule? As a museum assessment peer reviewer, um, I feel it's my duty to keep abreast of national standards and best practices, assess each museum using their mission statement as the benchmark for achieving or falling short of national standards and best practices. In other words, and this is a little different, the, the, the accreditation process is a little different from the assessment process in that in the accreditation process, well, it, how can I put this? The, the museum assessment process is a friendly assessment. That is, we, we look at the institution, we list their strengths and also their weaknesses or challenges or issues. And we suggest in the museum assessment uh, program recommendations of how they can improve. Whereas the accreditation program is, is basically taking a snapshot of the institution at that period in time, at that point in time, um, and then, uh, you know, it's either up or down. Uh, whereas the, the museum assessment program is more collegial, um, the report is, is a little bit more uh, friendly and a little bit more um, informal, if you will. Uh, but still, if there are areas that need addressing, uh, I feel it, it is my duty uh, incumbent upon me as a peer reviewer to point out those weaknesses and to make recommendations. Um, to the point where I've had, um, I've had institutions come back to me and say, well, as a result of your report, we had three board members resign. Uh, <laughs> or I had a board member come up to me and, and ask me, 
did you tell the peer reviewer what to write? Because, golly, it's the same thing you've been saying for the last, you know, few years. Uh, that's always uh, kind of interesting when a board member has that aha moment, you know, that, gee, the local people are doing, um, doing things right. So it's my, my um, duty to assess each museum using their mission statement as the bench, benchmark for achieving or falling short, to praise them when they achieve standards, and to recommend uh, changes where necessary, and to assess each museum's total operation in light of available resources or potential resources. For example, um, we all agree that it's, in theory, it's good to have diversity on your board. Um, however, if you're a, a small institution in, well, North Dakota, you know, diversity on your board may mean somebody under the age of 60. Um, so we look at the, the resources that are available to the institution, the community in which the uh, museum is, is a, a part of in our recommendations. So where does this leave us then? As a peer reviewer, it's my opinion uh, that it's okay to sleep in an antebellum four-poster bed. It's okay to play an Edison phonograph or to sit in an Art Deco chair. Houses and furniture uh, were made to be lived in and used, and the quality of your visitor's total experience will be enhanced and let's face it, so may your bottom line. Uh, so it's okay, get over it, move on, um, and um, best of luck. And on that note, uh, Mr. Ron Potvin from Brown University. Good morning, everyone. Uh, can everyone hear me? So this is me. Um, a little bit about my background, maybe, and why this is an important issue to me. Uh, I worked for about 10 or 11 years um, with collections in historic sites um, and spent the last 10 years at Brown University researching, writing, and teaching about issues in historic house museums. Um, so this is a very important topic to me. Um, sustainability of historic house museums is a very important topic. And so I think we need to be open about all of these issues and discuss them as thoroughly as possible. How many people were at the session last year in Oklahoma City? A few. Okay, well, I'll, I'll um, for the sake of folks who, who were there and weren't, I'll remind you what I said. And uh, basically I asked, are we cheating our visitors by simply showing and describing objects? Can using an object in an authentic way facilitate more immediate connection with people in the past who perform the same act? A one-size-fits-all approach to collections impedes the ability of museums to creative, creatively engage visitors. And I'm going to um, quote something that Elizabeth Pye says in her book, The Power of Touch, Handling Objects in Museum and Heritage Context, which is a book I recommend you take a look at. It's not directly applicable, but um, it does provide a lot of useful information about 
the theoretical underpinnings of, of uh, a sensory experience with objects. And she says, it's important for museum professionals to realize what a powerful, almost magical experience touch can provide when handling something venerated. This does not have to be an obviously ritual object. It could be a Paleolithic hand axe, awesome for its extraordinary age, or a slave yoke redolent of misery. I was rather theoretical in last year's talk. Um, it, it was sort of a manifesto, maybe in more ways than it was um, sound practical advice or um, information about how the Rembrandt rule is applied in museums. So this year I want to take more of a direct approach um, and show how some institutions are working within and um, without the Rembrandt rule and, and how it's become institutionalized in our, um, in our museums. Um, it's one thing to have uh, you know, a sort of ephemeral term like the Rembrandt rule, which is a little bit ephemeral, um, it's another thing to really see how it's, how it's applied. So why don't we allow touching of objects? I think we all know the answers, um, but I put them up there anyway, and I'll read them for the sake of the recording. Uh, we're afraid of breakage. We're afraid of gradual wear and tear. We're afraid of theft. We're afraid, basically. I think that's a big reason why we don't allow people to touch our objects. Another reason is um, authority. Curators, registrars, collections managers have all been trained to handle objects properly. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. We, we know how to do it. Um, another part of it is, though, maybe we don't want to relinquish that authority, even for objects that can be handled safely. So that's something we need to think hard about. The Rembrandt rule is <clears throat> inst institutionalized in museums in a variety of forms. Um, and I've listed a few of them here. I won't read all of these quotes um, at length, but um, it's in deeds of gift, loan agreements, collections policies, um, procedures, manuals. So these, these are some quotes I pulled from um, uh, new registration methods. Um, I understand that the management use, display, or disposition of my donation shall be in accordance with the professional judgment of the trustees and director of the museum. So it's essentially placing the responsibility in the museum to handle an object appropriately. Objects borrowed should be given proper care to ensure against loss, deterioration, or damage. Um, and then maybe the key phrase in this one is objects will be handled only by experienced personnel. That's a tough one to overcome. Um, if, if you've promised a donor or a lender that objects will only be touched by experienced personnel. And then there are also specific wishes of the donor or lender. They may have said you can or cannot do something with an object, and those things have to be honored or renegotiated. Um, and then uh, I'll refer to AAM's Accreditation Commission's um, expectations regarding collection stewardship. Um, and they talk about the sound and responsible management of collections, that it's uh, um, a legal, social, and ethical obligation to provide proper care uh, and management. And stewardship ensures that the objects that a museum holds are available for future generations. Um, that's sort of the first do no harm rule in collections management. Things should, at the very least, remain in the same condition in which you receive them, um, if not, be, be improved. Can we get around these restrictions? Um, so I'm not even sure if it should be called restrictions. They're, they're limitations, they're guidelines, um, they're, they're part of our, our field, um, but are they hard and fast? And I'm gonna show you a few organizations 
that are, I think, pushing the boundary, um, but staying within uh, these restrictions, and then a few that maybe are not. And I'll start out with my own institution. So we use a three-tier system um, to categorize our collections and the way that they're used. Um, and this is written into our loan agreements and into our collecting plan. So that's a place to start, is look at your paperwork, um, look at how collections management is described to donors and lenders. So we do have a category that are quote-unquote Rembrandts, and these are treated with a higher standard of care. Um, these are the objects that we don't allow people to handle, touch, um, and that are kept as, as much as possible in climate control condi conditions. Then we have what we call interpretation collections. And, and these are really um, used, uh, they're, they're facilitated use. So I'll work with students on, uh, with collections, um, and we'll examine them, we'll handle them, we'll take them apart, um, we'll see how they work, how they're put together. Um, here's a student, white gloved, you'll notice, looking at a desk drawer. And then we have what we call instructional, instructional collections. And these are, um, for lack of a better term, they're open for free use. Um, they can be sat on, they can be handled, they can be dismantled, they can be borrowed, they can be passed around. They are there to instruct. Um, however, we are not a museum, so I'm not sure how much of this is applicable. I'm only providing a model for, for you to consider. Then there are what are called study and education collections. This is a very common way for museums to um, allow collections to be handled and touched um, and experienced. And, um, and new museum registration methods, um, Buck and Gilmore said, often items can be used for scientific studies, school programs, hands-on demonstrations, exhibition props, or testing and conservation research. In these cases, it's expected that the objects will be subject to physical deterioration or destruction over time. Now, they aren't talking about Rembrandts. They are talking about a, a specific collection that is set aside for this purpose, either deaccessioned or purchased um, specifically for this purpose. Um, so the Alaska State Museum, Sheldon Jackson Museum, um, which is in a re remote area of Alaska, um, uses their study and education collections um, a bit more aggressively, perhaps. They um, work with teachers, the curator works with teachers to choose objects from their collections that can be taken into the classroom for use in a variety of projects. Um, for exhibits, for models to create reproductions, for inspiration for writing or drawing or drama, um, or as primary research material. So these are not a specific education collection. These are collection, items from their collection that they do loan to schools for children to work with. Um, but given that they are in a remote area, um, it, it may be necessary for them to use their collections in this way to engage any visitors at all. I think they service more people through this method than come through their doors. There are reproductions and durable objects um, that, that people can handle. Uh, I was at the um, United States Capitol Visitor Center about a month or so ago and I went to see the exhibit there, which is very impressive in its uh, museum standards. Um, you know, thick safety glass, dim lighting, um, security guards, cameras, um, you know, so they, they adhere to uh, museum standards very strictly. 
Uh, they also have some objects that people can touch. They have a polyurethane model of the Capitol Dome that's lighted from inside. It, it's a really um, neat experience. You can see little furniture in there, and, um, and you see here kids are touching it. They also have artifacts from the Capitol itself that have uh, been removed and replaced, so the original is mounted where you can touch it, or they have reproductions um, of elements from the building that you can touch. These tend to be highly durable objects. You know, they're wrought iron. Um, they're, or they're items that um, have already been replaced and essentially would have been discarded otherwise. Um, while it's a great professional exhibit and they do provide things to touch, I still found it very lacking. Um, I really wanted to engage more closely with the objects. Um, in some cases, they had uh, desks and chairs from um, earlier versions of the Capitol. And, inside cases and actually turned in ways, sideways at profile. Um, I felt really distant from the collections and, and it didn't feel like a place that provided a lot of access. And if I think there's an exhibit that should provide access, it should be you know, about our government. There's also replaceable objects. Some museums use objects that are, you know, I won't say easily replaced, but can be replaced. The Larissa Tenement Museum, um, has barrier-free barrier tours. Um, they don't use velvet ropes or partitions. Uh, a lot of their objects are period-appropriate objects um, purchased from antique stores um, or from dealers. Uh, they don't really think theft has been an issue. Um, security is still a concern, but they don't worry about it as much, I think, as most people. Because if an ashtray or something does get lifted, they can, they can replace it. Uh, fairly easily. I think this is, it's easier for a 20th century or a late 19th century historic house museum to do this, obviously, than an 18th century house museum. So those are a few that, you know, are, are sort of dancing around the boundary of the Rembrandt rule, um, but, but are there places that do more, and can we do more? So I have a few examples of places that I think are um, going over the line. One is the Skolnick House, which they, they brand as a historic house uh, of the Depression era. Opened a few years ago, so in some ways it isn't burdened by 75 years of practice um, or 75 years worth of standards. Um, it's part of a uh, professional uh, museum complex in Muskegon, Michigan. They use period appropriate furnishings and decorations in the house, but they're not original to the house. Um, and the tours are self-guided with volunteers stationed in different rooms to answer questions. And according to the historic sites manager, um, she says, we encourage people to sit down and read a magazine from 1930. We invite them to play Monopoly or their piano. We also invite visitors to write down their memories of the Great Depression. And a lot of research has shown a link between touching and sensory experience and memory. Um, and this is one place where, where handling an object can be very useful for a museum. And I've uh, quoted a visitor to the house um, who was in turn quoted in the Muskegon Chronicle. And she said, it reminds me of my grandma's house in town. Um, she looked over the Depression era house and marveled at everything from the doctor's satchel left in the doorway to the canned goods in the old fashioned cupboards. And then a real memory. I haven't regretted my childhood, she said. It might be a different story for my mom and dad, but for us kids, no, not once. So this is a, this is a case where really interacting with the space and the objects um, took her back to a time, an emotional period in her life, um, connected her back to her parents who um, you know, were long dead, 
So the utility of touching in memory is very important. Dr. Bob's house in, in Akron, Ohio, uh, it's a birthplace of Alco Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and it's still used very much in the way that Dr. Bob, uh, Robert Smith, used it. Um, visitors, um, including some still struggling with addiction, come into the house. They sit at Dr. Bob's kitchen table. Um, they drink coffee. They sit in the furniture. They wander around the house. Um, they use the house in, it's almost a spiritual way for some of them. they really connecting to Dr. Bob. Um, AA is, in some ways, a spiritual process. So this is a, a house museum um, that is maintaining its original purpose and is using its furnishings um, in an authentic way. And one um, um, AA blogger who had visited the house said, I was happy to see a coffee pot in the kitchen in full too. There is something special about AA coffee. Upon walking into the kitchen, it smelled like an AA meeting. I imagine the conversations that took place in this room and throughout this house had an incredible depth and weight. So through the sensory experience, this time of smell, um, there was a real um, spiritual, emotional connection with the space that may not have occurred if it was um, velvet ropes and glass walls. The National Trust um, is probably the leader in thinking and acting on the Rembrandt rule. Um, so I have a few examples from the Trust. The first is Lincoln's Cottage. Um, some rooms are interpreted with period pieces, pieces and visitors are allowed to sit in the furniture. Um, the Trust used reproductions, um, partly because they didn't know what Lincoln brought with him each time he visited the house. It was, it was a temporary home for him. So they, they didn't have any evidence for what to put in there that would be authentic. Um, and also they didn't want the place to be about the stuff. They wanted it to be about his ideas. So, uh, and they also, rep they found that reproductions were much uh, less expensive and replaceable than buying something that was authentic. So, um, it, it was really designed to be used in this way. Uh, one of the things they've done with it is use it for a teacher training workshop in 2010. And an eighth grade U.S. history teacher who participated in that workshop said, the cottage provides a canvas to humanize the president, but it also provides an opportunity for historic perspective taking. These figures were living in the 1800s and had things in common with us, grief, fear, the need for quiet time. So this immersive experience within the house that included sitting and touching, um, wandering the rooms, um, allowed a connection to Lincoln's ideas. Um, again, that might have been more rich than if it was done in another way. The Farnsworth House in Plano, Illinois. It's a, a Mies van der Rohe house built in 1951. Um, it's one building on seven acres, um, and opportunities for the uh, programming of the site are, are, are limited because of the nature of the site. Um, so what they've come up with is overnight stays for a fee, where you sleep in the beds and you use the furniture, you use the house. Um, it's not the original Farnsworth furniture, it's 1970s and 80s furniture designed by Van der Rohe that was purchased by the second generation of ownership, um, and it's replaceable objects. So if something gets broken, theoretically it's still available and they can replace it. The Philip Johnson Glass House, um, which most of you have probably heard about in the past, uh, built, built in 1949. It's 12 buildings on 50 acres. It's a bit more uh, of an intensive experience, a flexible experience. Um, 
so they're exper still experimenting with it, with ways to use um, the glass house. Uh, one of the things that's, that's often talked about is um, a stool or a chair that um, is supposed to have Philip Johnson's butt print on it, for lack of a better word. Um, he used it so much that there's an indentation. So, you know, is that something that you want to have someone sit in? Will it change the butt print? Um, are there other stools that you can sit in? So they've tossed these ideas around. There's really no consensus. Um, but the real core of the idea for, for this house um, is this photograph. Um, and remember their names. This is from left, uh, Andy Warhol, uh, David Whitney, Philip Johnson, Dr. John Dalton, and the architect Robert Stern um, sitting around having a conversation. So they created a program called Glasshouse Conversations that would bring in sort of equivalent groups of luminaries to discuss um, grand topics. Um, it didn't really work out in some ways because it was a real top-down version of history. Nothing ever was produced from that. There were no minutes, there were no articles. So it was really exclusive to this group. But the idea still, um, they don't do this anymore, but they have an online version of it um, that you can visit on their website. So some of the things that the trust has found throughout their experimentation with, um, with their historic houses is that some of the pros are um, providing these types of experiences, letting people pay a fee to sleep in a house provides income, and a lot of these places need income. Um, it also provides an important immersive sensory experience, um, and I, I think I've talked somewhat about the benefits of those along the way. The cons are um, there's, there's an aura of exclusivity. If you're only allowing wealthy people, sort of like um, um, if, if you have the right influence, you can sleep in Lincoln's bedroom, it really doesn't seem to be uh, a democratic enough educational experience. And there is, of course, wear and tear on the collections, collections and sites, which... Um, should be a concern. So I just want to go through some of the benefits of a sensory experience. Um, evoking memories we've talked about. Um, this is especially useful for seniors. Um, people have been displaced um, either from their, their home, and they're maybe now in a retirement home, or from their country of origin. To touch and handle objects from their past can create a closer connection to a place that they fondly remember. Um, access for the blind and visually impaired. How else do the visually impaired have access to collections except through touch or smell? Um, it enriches museum learning. And uh, research by REACH advisors um, indicates that touch in museums is becoming much more important as, as a memory, as part of your memory of visiting a museum. Individualized learning. Um, if I touch something or handle it, it um, allows me to form my own connection, my own conclusions about an object in a way that's different from a guide or a docent telling me about an object. Um, there are some objects that you can't understand unless you use them. Um, and this is particularly true for um, industrial museums, but in house museums, maybe there are things that need to be wound up to see how it works. Um, maybe we need to hear the sound of a tall case clock um, to know how it sounded in that house. Um, ethnography, um, so if we're dealing with an anthropological objects, sometimes we need someone from that culture to handle an object and explain the meaning to us or to really understand the meaning of an object. 
But it's important to, to note that, again, this is from Elizabeth Pye, that just handling an object for, uh, for handling's sake isn't really the best way to go about it. We don't really know enough about um, the emotional, mental connections between handling an object, what objects work best for that, which ones don't work at all. Uh, so last year I proposed that we should revise a guideline um, Instead of saying don't touch anything, the new gui guideline should be don't touch everything. That's a really loose standard, and how, how do we explain that to our boards and our, our collections uh, personnel? So I've come up with um, uh, maybe phase two of, of, this, um, of this idea, and um, I've organized it as a pyramid. Um, I think you can or organize it in other ways. The base of the collection is still our Rembrandts. They're still the things that um, we cherish and the things that um, should not be handled, the things that we do need to keep for perpetuity. Then there's a group that I call facilitated objects. And these are objects that can be touched or handled or smelled with the facilitation of someone who's trained um, in touching and handling objects. Um, and the, the final, the tip of the pyramid is objects that um, can be handled generally without the sort of facilitation. They're either durable, replaceable, or in some way so important to the experience of the visitor that they should be handled. I think that um, I've created a hierarchy here that privileges the Rembrandts. Uh, at our site, I, we flip this pyramid upside down, and I think we privilege the objects that can be touched and handled first and foremost. So this is really up to the individual museum to decide how they prioritize these collections, and that's where our expertise as museum people comes in. Um, so why aren't we there yet? I'm down to two minutes. Um, and the Rembrandt rule, it's still there. It's still part of our, our sort of ethos in museums. Um, the standards and policies. Um, again, this lack of research about touch and, and experience um, and senses and emotion. Um, and we really do need to work more on this. We need more research. Um, so uh, this is me again. Um, I'm going to upload this. Um, you can contact me at ronald underscore potvin at brown.edu. And I will be uploading this PowerPoint to our own website at www.brown.edu slash janebc. Um, and I'll be happy to talk or argue with any of you about this issue at the end of the session. Thank you. So I'm an educator. Um, how many of you feel you're collections people? How many of you feel you're educators? How many of you feel that there's a blurred line there? And you can be both. Okay, I just got to know who my audience is, so I know where to duck. And uh, okay, so that's that's sort of the beginning piece that I wanted to just get some concept of uh, who was in the room. Um, I was uh, also asked to sit here and uh, maybe be a little bit of a provocateur. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of the role I play in lots of things, so we'll do that. How many of you agree with the Rembrandt rule as it is uh, framed that uh, our object should not be touched? There are a few. 
but very few, let's say, in the mic. Get the mic closer. Okay. All right. Um, so most everybody agrees with Jim Vaughn and what has been said today that we maybe need to think a little differently about how we're organized. Okay, is that a reasonable assess uh, assessment? Good, okay. So then there's really no reason to be talking here, right? Um, <laughs> all we really need to do is take this that um, Ron has just talked to us through and take it home, figure out how to do it, and then wait for Don to come and assess us, right? <laughs> I mean, okay, we're done. No. Uh, so I, I um, um, bringing a, a level of experience in a lot of different places. I started my career as an archaeologist and lived on an archaeological site for nine years and told every visitor about that site uh, during the time that they came to visit. It's 95 acres out in the middle of North Dakota. It looks like a big field. Um, but 2,000 people lived there 150 years ago, and you build word pictures, and you do all kinds of positive interpretation with people without many objects except the place. Uh, and then you start to show them paintings that were drawn 150 years ago of the people living in that place, and it comes alive, and pretty soon you can uh, get some idea of how you can interpret using objects. And. Uh, because I base my career in archaeology, the thing that archaeologists do is that they pick up this rock off the ground and look at it and say, hey, this has been modified by man. And then they look at that a little more closely and they say, well, that rock comes from a, a rock quarry that's 150 miles over there. I wonder why somebody would have walked all the way over there to get this kind of rock. And then they realize that it has conchoidal fracture properties in it, so it could be made into an arrowhead. and all of a sudden we're into technology, and there's the whole story out of that object, but I had to pick it up, all right? And that's my point. Um, later in my career, I worked at the Jamestown Settlement, which is just down here, down the road a ways. Um, in 1607, the English arrived here uh, successfully and stayed here, and that's why we're all here. Um, before that time, Powhatan and his people were living um, in Tidewater, Virginia. And the Jamestown settlement is an ideal replica because the real site is next door on Jamestown Island. This place is a place that you can walk into as a visitor. You can handle all the stuff. And the methodology that's there is an educational methodology of putting objects in people's hands. That was what we trained our staff to do. Everybody handles everything. And if you want to see the Holy Grail, you go and look behind the piece of glass, and there's the Holy Grail. But this bone needle that I'm making right here, and you want to smell that bone dust, um, is a way that you can gain an experience of 400 years ago. And so I see that there's this value in this interplay, and I think that's really what we're all really saying. And so. You know, and everybody here feels that way too. I want those two people that raised their hand who said that the Rembrandt rule is what it's all about to unknot their knickers later and talk with us. Because part of what happened last year is that there were people in the audience that were very concerned about what was being said and walked out of the room. 
and that's not an acceptable behavior today, okay? So we'll, we'll, we'll get to you, all right? I mean, I promise that um, we'll ask you to, to uh, address some of this with us. Um, so uh, uh, Ron mentioned uh, the, the Capital Visitor Center, and I did that a couple of months ago, too. And the one thing that just freaked me out there was that they had facsimiles of paper, and it said, do not touch. <laughs> it's like, what? This is a Xerox, people. Come on. So are they trying to teach us how to behave? And if that's the case, then why don't they tell us that? that we want to teach you what to touch, what to handle, and how to handle it. And maybe you need to put a white glove on sometimes, and maybe you can drop it, and if it's made out of glass, maybe it'll break. Learning point, glass breaks. That's not a bad thing for a kid who's never had a glass jar in his hand before. It's always been plastic. Uh, grandma used glass, and she was a little more careful with it. Um, so, with that said, um, I just was going to talk a little bit about Split Rock Lighthouse. When I was working at the Minnesota Historical Society, I was working in historic sites, and part of what I did was follow on the end of what was called the Historic Sites Documentation Project, um, an IMLS grant. 17 historic sites across the state of Minnesota, all with staff on them and full of stuff, just like your regular historic sites. And the collections in those sites had not been well documented. And so through this IMLS process, there was years of involvement where curators and site managers and collections people went out and handled and looked at everything and pulled out all of the records and pulled out all of the files and made decisions on stuff. So you've got holy grails and you've got stuff that can be consumed and you've got props that were put there just because they needed to be there. And then you've got the stuff that some interpreter just put there because it was their best story and they pulled it out of there, you know, I mean, stuff that had nothing to do with the site. And all of that was sorted out during this multi-year project. So Split Rock Lighthouse is at the end of Lake Superior. It's a state historic site. It was an active lighthouse until it was turned over to the Historical Society. The reason it was there is that Lake Superior is a big lake and there's lots of water and ships can crash on these rocks um, because of the waves, right? So look in the back of the picture, there's the lighthouse, but there are also three buildings that you can see off to the left um, in, the, in the picture. And those are dwellings where the lightkeepers would have lived. Okay, so in the winter time it looks like this and this is just fun pictures and here's how big the lake is and blah blah blah, you know, and there's the light and it's really picturesque and <laughs> nobody hates a lighthouse. Uh, <clears throat> John will appreciate that. Uh, that's, uh, the site manager says everybody loves a lighthouse, but I know the quote isn't that. Um, anyway, so um, here's the light from the other side, and this is what it looked like in the early days. And you go into one of the dwellings, and it is set in the period of a lightkeeper, and it is a living history dwelling. And this is in the pantry. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. And some of it's real, and some of it's not real, and some of it's props, and 
What do you mean by real? Uh, the time period that this dwelling is set at is 40 years earlier than when the people that were living in this house left this house and it turned over to the historical society. So there might have been some old stuff in there that was left over from the time period that we're set at, but probably not much. Um, so there's that kind of issue in a historic site, is what's the period, what's the point, what are you trying to talk about, how does it fit your mission, all of those sorts of things that we all know, right? Except those two people sitting there. I'm, I'm supposed to be a provocateur. Um, <laughs> So one of the issues that happened at this site was that we interviewed the site staff about the things in this pantry. And oh my goodness, this stuff is the real stuff and nobody can touch it and blah, 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 blah. And we pulled out the records and we know that in 1970 when this site was turned to a living history site, the site manager went out to all the local junk shops and bought ball jars and put them on the shelves. Fifty years later, the interpretive staff doesn't know that isn't the real stuff. It's always been there. Hmm. There's a dilemma. So what I think of is, I call them PUMs. That's short for program use materials. And that's one of these hierarchical levels that we talk about. Um, there are these objects that are really expendable. It, you, you can replace them. And so isn't it more valuable perhaps to have somebody take a ball jar off of the shelf and look at the contents of it that's new stuff that you put in each year so the oatmeal doesn't have mealybugs in it, um, you know? Uh, and figure out what oatmeal looks I mean, does a kid know what oatmeal looks like? Maybe, maybe not. So that's a piece of it. And then there are the hands-on objects that are real. This wash tub uh, is not real, but the ringer behind it is. And we've put it in a place that's sort of on the porch that's pretty well protected and isn't used. But we also have one that could be used. So. There's a real object that's a sort of a, we would appreciate it if you don't handle that one. But come out here, we'll get a wash tub out, and you can see the real thing in place. That's the holy grail, not behind a curtain. If it walked away someday, well, you know, that would be too bad. Now, you go into the lighthouse and there's a hat that's the light keeper's hat. And if you are a lighthouse person, this is something that is the holy grail. Uh, it, they come to places to see these hats with the number of who the light keeper was and blah, blah, blah. Well, this is a replica of the real hat and the real ones in Minnesota Historical Society in St. Paul under lock and key. Um, and so you could put this hat on and the person that's coming for the Holy Grail may have to look to something else, like this object, um, which is upstairs in the lighthouse. 
and it's a Fresnel lens. It's the real deal. It's a second-order Fresnel lens with seven refracting and 13 reflecting prisms, um, and it puts out 1,200,000 candle power of light visible for 22 miles. Hey, it's a lighthouse, people. Um, this is pretty important piece. It's sitting on gallons of mercury, and that lens turns on the mercury. It's sort of like mercury right over the Lake Superior. Is this a hazardous thing? Oh, never mind. We won't go into that. That's the conservators' problems. Uh, that's a different group of folks, and they'll come by later, maybe. Okay. Um, so uh, just to, to pick up on a few things that were said by several others is the, 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 this authority piece. I think that was a really interesting one, and I really believe in shared authority. And so if I can share the authority with my visitors by letting them make resolution, understanding, processing um, happen, that's pretty cool. Um, at the North Dakota Historical Society, really the State Historical Society of North Dakota, so you all know, um, our collections policy is such that when an object comes to us, we now make a decision about whether it'll go into the permanent collection or it'll be uh, what they call instructional use, I call it educational use, later being a palm can be handled. And we tell the donors that. And if they don't like that, you know, so be it. Take your stuff back and go give it to somebody else. I mean, you know, I think that the, in the long run, moving forward, we need to pay attention to this and we need to do it right. The, the right way that I'm talking about, that we're all talking about, is we can't afford to hold everything for, for forever. And so we have to make decisions, and, that, and that's a piece that I think is, is really valuable. Um, what other things? Oh, the piece about it being about the concept, not the stuff, is kind of cool. So what's the mission of your place if there's learning involved and you really are trying to help somebody understand something, the object can maybe help that happen. They can drive the concept, and so using them does play to the mission, and if it's consumed, well, okay. But you be careful. I mean, you pay attention to it. And so here's a bunch of collections people coming in to look at the lighthouse. Um, and there's the visitors that are handling things or not handling things, and there's the light at night. Um, so, with that said, right. I'm gonna turn it over to you and you can provoke them further. <laughs> we'll go back to pretty pictures of the lighthouse because yeah, no one can hate a lighthouse. All right, so now it's your turn. Uh, challenge these guys. They came loaded for bear. Uh, we have a microphone here in the center, or if you just want to call out from where you crammed into this room uh, or in the hallway. Uh, questions, comments, what are you all doing at your own sites? Are your whiskers tweaked? Yes. Okay, so the, the comment is about insurance policies. And what does your insurance company say? No, no. And then they raise our rates because 
Ron, would you like to address? Is that a blankets um, policy for every item in your collection? Um, even if it's, you know, obviously insurance companies are, are basing things on appraised value. So if something's appraised at $100, they don't want people touching it. I think you should remove those from the policy. Um, I think that's part of your decision-making process. And if the insurance part of it is, is the barrier, then you can remove some things from the insurance policy so it's not their problem anymore. Okay, the question deals with uh, one person's Rembrandt is another person's junk, and should that be uh, something that is defined in our standards as a field, or is it defined institutionally? Am I understanding that? Uh, which one of you guys would like to field that? I can say a little bit. I think that it's a moving target. I mean, and I think that's really what we're realizing here. If I have to close my historic site because I can't afford to take care of the junk that's in it, then... Uh, yeah, what's the point? And so there's that level. And then I think there's the other piece that as the decisions are made, that those are well documented and well recorded. So if this is a holy grail at this time period, why was that decision made? Or the other way, if this is a consumable object in 1970, I can buy ball jars left and right, and all of a sudden there is no glass, uh, do, do those things need to change? Uh, from the standpoint of, of museum assessment, I think it's, it's the institutional. Within the framework of your mission statement, within the framework of your collections policy, um, long-range plan, institutional plan. And I would just add that I don't think that's something you can standardize in the field because every object is unique. Well, not every object is unique, but um, every situation is unique. Um, how does the object relate to the organization and its mission? Um, what I think needs to happen is it needs to be a qualified staff person or a committee, if, if that's where you want to go, who makes those decisions. In my institution, it's me. I'm the curator, so I make the decisions about how things are used. And um, our lenders um, understand that, and that's part of the deal. I think Ron's point about being a curator is an interesting thing, too, because I'm a curator, too, but I'm a curator of education, and so I advocate for audience rather than the object. Uh, and not to say that I don't protect objects, but I think that that's an important difference. And a lot of museums today are losing their curators due to financing. And what does that mean as an implication to the field? I think that that's a concern that's a much bigger question than what we're talking about. But I think it is an issue. Okay, we have a question over here.
Well, I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, we actually, we're in a historic mansion, but despite having um, almost 9,000 square feet, we have very little storage room. Uh, so we actually have designated one of the closets as the consumable closet. It's the education closet. And so all of our materials that are to be used uh, is in that closet. Then we have a completely separate building where everything in it was purchased as antique to fill. Um, and we know that it is all to be touched, to be used, to be sat upon, and we've numbered them all separately. Um, Past Perfect, whatever database you're using, has a way to uh, number things differently. So I start out, and this is, this is an artifact of, of my own career, uh, at one of the large museums, to be named later, uh, that I used to work at, they started their accession numbers with EDUC and that indicated it was education collection. And then uh, it followed the exact same uh, registration method standard of 2004.001.007 uh, after the EDUC. So I have a 2004.001.007 in the regular collection and one in the education collection, but it's clearly differentiated on the object as well as in uh, the database. So, gentlemen. Minnesota Historical Society has a number of different levels. One is the permanent collections that are housed at the History Center. Then there are permanent collections that are housed at a site. So if it's a Holy Grail that's related to Split Rock, it would be at the site. So location is the break there. Then there are POMs that are program use materials that are numbered. A site manager might be concerned about them and has an inventory at the site level and is responsible for that collection. And then there are POMs that are completely expendable and those might be things that get washed and the label's gonna come off so you don't really care. We also have a couple of sites that are living history only sites. One of them that has, is full of historic objects. It's a living history farm. But you don't raise stuff with historic plows and not touch the objects because the oxen have to be hitched to them. Uh, so. Uh, in my institution, that's easy. Um, every chair in our site, except for two, you can sit on. Um, where there are chairs that I feel are delicate and I prefer people would not sit on them, I put in a place that makes them uncomfortable to sit on or where you can't really see anything from where you're sitting on them. Um, there are two chairs that you can't sit on and those are distinguished by ribbons across the arms. And the only reason we don't allow people to sit on those is because they're in need of conservation. If you sat on it, you'd fall through. Um, there are other objects that were in that condition that have been conserved and are stable enough to be sat on. We speak with our conservator. Um, and we explain the intended use. But that, that's a rather unique situation. And I did want to mention, too, that the way we use our collections is actually following the wishes of the donors. Um, the donors were the owners of the house. And the way they viewed the evolution of this house was as a continuation of its use by the family. Um, one of the donors said he did not want it to be a historic house mausoleum. He wanted it to be used. So we are actually following the wishes of the donor. But more to the question, I think it is a tricky situation in historic house museum context because if you do allow a visitor to touch one object, they may assume that it's okay to touch every object. 
And that's something I've been worrying about, um, and I haven't quite figured out how to do it yet. Um, and maybe that's next year's session. How do we actually distinguish um, objects within a house museum setting that are touchable or not? One of the ways is to have it be facilitated by um, a docent or someone who is trained in handling objects to pass it around or to explain how it should be touched. Um, but we are opening a bit of a Pandora's box in that sort of context. So I, I think we do need to think about that some more. But um, organizationally, it may be handled different for each place. Maybe the, the sort of free-for-all objects are segregated into a, um, a hands-on education area. Um, and maybe the House Museum has the Rembrandts and the facilitated touch objects. So there are ways to do it. I just think we need to think more about it. And and I think as far as uh, as an assessment, um, that would be incumbent upon the, the the peer reviewer noticing that, pointing it out in the report and, and in the recommendations. And my recommendations, I try to prioritize them into short range, medium range, and long range uh, recommendations. And that might be a short range recommendation where the, the peer reviewer recommends, as, as Ron said, that a facilitator use this object or be there to, to guide or um, uh, the, the visitor in, in, in that way. The other thing is we're talking about universals. And um, in North Dakota, if you have 650,000 people in the state, the visitation when it's high is 10 a day. Um, in Virginia, if you see 650,000 people at the Jamestown settlement in any given year, um, you know, there's a lot of traffic. And so those decisions, I think, are site-by-site -site specific, too. How many butts in chairs, pardon my uh, metaphor, uh, have to do with how often people are going to sit in them, and that goes back to conservating. Okay, we have time for uh, just one more question, and in the back. conservation or preservation and and why you would for instance not want to restore a musical instrument to playing use or why you would but he raises very good questions that we've all talked about uh, about the larger questions number one and number two we talked about going out and buying especially for 19th and 20th century sites stuff that people can use. What happens when the stuff runs out? And because there was a finite amount of stuff made, we're not making it anymore. Part, for me, part of the power of going to an historic house is knowing if it, it's an original object, wow, these people really used here, used this thing. 
can we really replace those things with another thing and say, this thing was used here? Um, I know we think that these things are, are is infinitely, but they're not. They're, and, and so this kind of, oh, we can always go and buy another one. Well, you can't always go and buy another one. Um, I just wanted to bring that up. Right, and uh, I think uh, the point uh, that uh, Martha was making is what happens when the stuff runs out. Um, we don't, we're not advocating that you use Thomas Jefferson's hammer as a demonstration piece. Uh, you know, Lincoln's coat, that's not to be, tr you know, tried on by third graders. Uh, these are reproduction pieces. There are wonderful places that make reproductions. Uh, or things that are just have no provenance. Um, there's a museum in Augusta, Georgia that shall remain nameless, uh, but if you visited there, you'd known it. Uh, they literally have 42 spinning wheels that were just given by DAR people, and they're just sitting there. They don't know who they were used by. They don't know what they were used for. They're just sitting there. And you don't touch them. They're behind velvet ropes. It's going to take a long time to use up those 42 spinning wheels. Uh, so I th and then there are some wonderful reproductions that are available. Uh, and that's, I think, what we need to, to start looking at as a field. If there becomes a demand for reproductions, there will be more and there will be cheaper. And uh, as far as the 42 that are sitting there in this particular museum, uh, no one's learning from them. There's no interpretation. So what's the point of having them? at that point. Yeah, I think there's one other thing to think about too is with the ethno-historical stuff is that some objects are not meant to live forever. And so at least in, in some situations, uh, you holding them in your collections is sacrilege. Uh, and so that, that's a piece that just I, I wanted to put out there so people can conceive of that too because that may have to go into your policy. Um, I actually agree that their um, collections are non-renewable resources. Eventually they will run out. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take, but it, it's true. If we keep using things, they will wear out, we will run out. For me, though, um, the experience that a visitor gains from the object is equal to our responsibility to maintain the object. And if a visitor is not gaining any knowledge, um, any feeling um, from an object, then it's useless anyway. So we need to really think hard about the experience that the visitor gains from the object. Um, and I guess the last point I would like to make, because I think we're over time, is that um, we've been calling this now for about three or four years, the Rembrandt Rule, and with all due respect to Jim Vaughn, and with great thanks actually for beginning this discussion, I think maybe we need to start thinking about calling it something else besides a rule. Um, because human nature, people given the choice of whether or not to break a rule or not, will most likely not break the rule. Um, so maybe it needs to be called something else, something that um, is less intimidating. Um, and I'm open to suggestions on that. I, I do think we need to m move beyond this idea that it's a, it's a rule and that we're in violation in, uh, to our responsibility somehow.
the Rembrandt suggestion. I like that. 